In 2018, the Pennsylvania Attorney General's Office released a 1,000-page report detailing decades of sexual assault and cover-ups committed by Roman Catholic clergy. Like the reports and investigations that preceded it, it's fading from memory. Swears and Prayers is a conversation with Catholics about their relationship with the Church and their struggles with faith in the face of this ongoing and unresolved crisis. These are everyday people and their real stories. This is Adrian. She grew up in New Orleans and now lives in Charlottesville, Virginia. She's in her 70s. People say they were raised Catholic, but not really like we were raised Catholic. I grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana, oh. and I'm 71, so we're talking about the 50s and 60s. St. Rose de Lima, St. Leo the Great, St. Joseph Academy, Marquette University, oh. <laughs> right through an uncle and cousins who were priests, you know, so... My sister once characterized our family as more Catholic than the Pope. <laughs> I come from that kind of family, yeah. so I understand. <laughs> but then um, in, in college, I became a disbeliever. And probably for the next 20 years, didn't pay much attention to God at all. And really? then life caught up with me. Um, I had three children. My husband left me, um, and one night, I, one sleepless night, when my husband had our children, my soon-to-be ex-husband had our children, um, I went to 7-Eleven in the middle of the night, and they had paperback novels there, and I picked up a novel called Patience of a Saint by Andrew Greeley. Oh, yeah. He was a Catholic oh, priest and a sociologist. The novel was definitely second rate, mm. but he one of the one of the primary themes of the novel was being surprised by grace, and Greeley's phrase was "God swung his cosmic baseball bat and knocked me up the side of the head," and that's pretty much what happened to me. Wow. Um, I started reading. Basically everything that C.S. Lewis wrote, mm -hmm. um, and gradually came back to faith. Um, started attending a Lutheran church actually, and teaching Sunday school. But with Lutherans. Yes. Oh. Okay. With Lutherans, um, and then worshipped very briefly with them in a Methodist church, and then basically settled down for almost two decades in an Episcopalian church. Oh. Well, was this here in here in Charlottesville? Okay. Which yes. church do you mind? Um, it's a church that doesn't exist any oh, longer okay. because it was uh, Church of the Cross, which okay. was out in Forest Lake South. It was a um, a mission church. So when the Episcopalian Church reached hard times financially, they closed some of their mission churches, okay. which were diocesan-supported. So that church closed, and then I worshipped at Christ Church for a while, mm -hmm. always teaching Sunday school. For me, 
Um, God speaks to me most clearly when I'm teaching Sunday school. I often find myself with words that I didn't know I had when I'm teaching kids. And then I hear words from them that, that really enrich my faith. So um, when my mom came to live with, well, mom lived with me on and off for several years, for about almost two decades now. Um, but then two years she moved ago, she moved here permanently. And when she came, I started worshiping at Incarnation Church with her. And again, I taught Sunday school there. And you Loved taught, it. You taught my son. Yes, I did. <laughs> Miss Adrian is very nice. <laughs> So I, I love teaching Sunday school, um, and I fully intended to go on doing that, even though I have always very much objected to the patriarchy and the hierarchy. The exclusion of women, but not just of women, um, the exclusion of LGBTQ people, um, just the, the taking upon themselves judgment of others. Uh, I felt that the church was called to bring God's grace and forgiveness to others, that God could take care of the judgment herself. Um, I also really objected to the exclusively masculine imagery of God, which... I have a question about that. Like, yes. Since you did teach Sunday school in like Protestant churches, was that... How did they use pronouns there? How did you... like? Was that like more satisfying to you? No, no. it so was always my own yeah. thing. What so around, along my journey in and out of and around faith, for several years I made weekend trips down to Charlotte, North Carolina to attend Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. Okay. I was working for a master's degree in, um, in Christian counseling, actually. So, um, Along the lines, in the courses that I took there, I learned that in the Old Testament, where we read the word Lord, that's actually a substitute for Yahweh, because mm -hmm. the Jews didn't believe in speaking the name of God. And that's how God became overly gendered in the Christian church. So, because Lord was used, all the pronouns became masculine pronouns. And I really felt that the word God itself was beyond gender. Um, I kind of like to think of God as an LGBTQ person. Interesting. <laughs> so, most of the time I, avoid, I try to avoid pronouns and mm -hmm. just use God. Um, but when I do use a pronoun, I use a feminine pronoun because I figure we've got 2,000 years of overuse of the masculine, a little overuse of the feminine won't hurt at this <laughs> point. So getting, so at Incarnation you're teaching Sunday school and how's that going? Like is that satisfying to you or how's that? Are you still doing that now? No, no okay. I'm not. Um, I was going to do it and then the Pennsylvania report came up and that added on top of the reservations that I already had was just too much for me. At that point, I thought the problem is not 
in disagreement with Pope Francis, individual priests. The problem is the patriarchal hierarchy that protects the individual priest. And that there's some evidence does more than protect, that actually becomes a participant in enabling. Um, and I felt strongly at that point that unless the laity withdrew support from the church structure as it exists now, nothing was going to change. Have you been to Mass at Incarnation since the, the Pennsylvania report came out? Pro, so what we, so I withdrew everything. I withdrew my financial support. I withdrew my support in the ministries because mm -hmm. um, I was active in the social justice ministry right. as well as the uh, Sunday school. And mom and I most Sundays go to a very small, beautiful, very simple mass at Our Lady of Peace retirement home. Everyone's talking about that mass. It is an absolutely lovely mass. Of course, almost everyone there is in their 80s and 90s. So there's no standing up, sitting down, kneeling, genuflecting, going up for communion. Um, it's which keeps a quietness and internal feeling to it that it's almost impossible to have. Not just at Incarnation, but in any larger church yeah. where there's a formal liturgy that involves a lot of kind of shuffling, you know, and movement. This, everything is very still here. It's a room that's surrounded by windows and manages to feel sunlit even on dreary days. And it just feels, it's a very comforting uh, experience. Now, occasionally, maybe three or four times in the last six months when we haven't been able to make that Mass, we have gone to Incarnation. So to answer your question, yes, I have been very occasionally and not really enough to get a feel for how the people there feel or what's going on there. Um, I've really withdrawn my interest. I. It's interesting that you say that because I'm not, I've left that church and my kids are in the throes of like, you know, receiving their sacraments and all that stuff. I have a younger daughter and I'm like, I don't know where to go, but I can't go there and I can't go to the church. So this is kind of like, I am thinking there's other people in the same situation that are, I think the gravity of what happened in Pennsylvania, I'm from Pennsylvania, um, that I knew some of the people mentioned in there and it's just you can't unknow it now what did you how did you react like in 2002 like when the Boston Globe stories came out and like in 2005 when the Philadelphia reports came out like did that register with you were you involved in anything at that time or? yes I was not nearly to the extent let me think back 2002 and 2005 I was still worshiping in the Episcopal Church okay. so I would characterize my reaction then. Thinking back on it, my reaction then is now somewhat distasteful to me because it was a smug kind mm -hmm. of pride. I'm not part of that anymore. Right. 
know, so because I wasn't worshiping in a Catholic church then, I felt kind of superior, not just removed, but superior to it all. So if you were in, I'm going to trying to get a timeline for you. So you were away from the church for a long time and you worshiped a, a Lutheran, Episcopalian. Was there something that drew you back to the Catholic church or was it like, well, you know, this mission church I was involved in isn't, you know, happening anymore and my mom moved in with me, like, so, yeah, so the, when the mission, when the Episcopalian Mission Church closed, the man who had been pastor there became associate pastor at Christ Episcopal here in Charlottesville. It, you know, there's a problem with interviewing a 71-year-old. I have a lot of history. <laughs> so, um, my, my husband had died in 2003 and I became very very close to my Episcopal pastor and his wife and their five children. My own children were grown and none lived in Charlottesville by that time. None of my family lived in Charlottesville. So my Episcopal priest and his wife um, really became family for me. They took me in in the most loving, sensitive way possible. And then just in the most boisterous way, they had five children, you know, so it was wonderful. So when the church that he was pastoring closed, he became associate pastor at Christ Church. So initially I worshiped at Christ Church. But Christ Church is you can't tell the difference between Christ Church and a, and a large Catholic church. You know, it's very formal, ornate, Tiffany stained glass windows. It felt too much like the ornateness that I disliked mm -hmm. in Catholic churches. Um, and then when mom would visit me for several months at a time, I would worship with her at Incarnation. So I have to say, at that point in my life, it was six of one, half a dozen of the other right. for me. I didn't particularly care where I worshipped. But one day, Sheila, the social justice minister at Incarnation, stood up and made an announcement about a workshop, um, a social justice ministry workshop, multi-time multi workshop that she was going to be having. And I, many people would describe it as I felt called. I just felt a strong urge to be part of that workshop. So mom and I did. I think it was a six-week workshop that met once a week. So that drew me into social ministry work with Sheila. And then, of course, Sunday schools are always looking for Sunday school right. teachers. So I made the mistake of saying to the woman who was then heading the Sunday school, well, if you don't have enough teachers, and, you know, a few weeks later, I found myself teaching Sunday school and loving it. So, and plus, um, in the workshop, I met a woman, Carol, who has become one of my best friends. So she and I actually team taught Sunday school together for a couple of years, um, and then she stopped teaching and I kept on teaching. So I just felt, at that point in my life, I felt like God was drawing me 
back into the Catholic Church and that was fine with me even though there were lots that I didn't like about it. Um, it wasn't enough. I had enough. My my faith life was not based in the church. Okay. Almost never. It was based, my faith life is based in the Psalms. What do you think of the, so do you have to receive the sacraments? No. No, okay. So, so the sacramental life is not like your uh, emphasis. Well, I'm divorced, mm -hmm. so um, which is one of the reasons. I'm divorced and remarried, Okay, and um, that is one of the reasons why I don't receive the sacraments. But probably I wouldn't, even if I weren't divorced and remarried, because there's too much of the formal theology that I am uncertain of. So when I want to receive the sacrament, I go back to an Episcopal church. That's interesting. And <laughs> I receive there. See, I think that there's a lot of this going on, of people having like a hybrid faith life that they have, they don't find a home where they're raised, for instance, um, and they find, but, but they find it somewhere else but they still identify with the original, um, like the Catholic terms. Like, do you consider yourself a Catholic at this moment? I can't ever be anything but a Catholic in some sense. Although, most of the time, if people ask me if I'm Catholic, I will say I worship at a Catholic church. And I should say that although I've worshiped at Lutheran, Methodist, Episcopal, and Catholic churches, I've never agreed to join any church. So even when I taught Sunday school at Incarnation and taught Sunday school in the Episcopal Church and the Lutheran Church, I did not join the church. Oh. I don't think a church is something that you should join. Faith is a really personal thing for me, so I'm really comfortable with what you just said. I think right. everybody should have their own hybrid faith. Right. You know, and use churches as it's comfortable for them to use churches. Um, so here's the question though, is that the, the idea of like heresy and things like this, which I, I don't really, I'm not really in, invested in the idea of, of heresy or apostasy, like as far as like my day-to-day -day life goes. But if you, I think there's some people, maybe I'm one of them, who's like, well, I want to write everything. Like, I want everything to be, like, making sense, like, theologically and in my life. Do we get to a point where we're just like, eh, like, I need to just be satisfied with, like, what I'm doing? Or does, do things like doctrine, do they matter to you? And do you, and in, like, teaching Sunday school and being in contact with, like, the wider, the people who, like, want faith formation for their kids or whatever, do you, how do you see, like, doctrine playing into this, if at all? That's a really tough question. I yeah, and it might not even be... I'm, no, I, it's a tough question because it's a good question, but it's got, it's, it's like an octopus yeah, question. It's, it's got so many different <laughs> possible answers. You know, I should say that when I taught Sunday school, I was very, very upfront yeah. with the... Um, I know it's not called Sunday School Superintendent in the Catholic Church, but with, with the Director of Christian Education. And the commitment that I made was that in the classroom, I would teach Catholic doctrine. Okay. So I always did that. I taught Catholic doctrine. 
Now, that's not to say that I didn't also try to help the children, you know, understand a little bit broader, like we don't necessarily have to always refer to God as male, you know, and um, the Catholic Church is not the only way to worship Christ and God. Um, but I was very careful to stick with mainline Catholic doctrine in the classroom. Mm -hmm. For myself, I absolutely agree that the problem with no mediation between ourselves and God is the possibility of falling into heresy. I mean, you know, even someone like Martin Luther, I mean, if you look at what he thought of Jews, you know, it's kind of creepy right. to say the least, you know. So uh, God can inspire a person, but that doesn't mean that they're not still liable to make some really terrible mistakes. Right. So there is definitely that risk, you know. There's the risk that you'll drink the Kool-Aid. Yeah and end up dead, all too literally, as well as spiritually. On the other hand, look at the risk of not doing that. It's not just the risk, which is horrendous enough, of acceptance of turning a blind eye to things that are really opposed to even just natural law, much less God's law but also of never making your faith really personal. I mean, you know, Catholic schooling from age four through about age 20, and I would say my faith was personal to the extent that it was able to be in one so young, but nothing like it's been since I came back to my own faith as an adult. You know, that is deeply personal. I feel comfortable finding my way between churches, right. you know, which is something I never would have done, of course, when I was young. I think, I just want you to talk a little bit about, like, growing up in pre-Vatican II, like, the Catholic universe, because I am from, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and it was, at the, I think it was like the tail end of that, like I went to Catholic school, K-12, all-girls school, Mercy nuns, St. Joseph nuns, my uncle's Christian brother, people in my family were, I mean, it was such a cultural, like, force that you didn't really need to have an internal world, like an internal understanding of God, because you're like, all the structures are keeping me in here, so... Did you have a crisis when you left or you just fell away being almost like a cultural, like, did you consider yourself culturally Catholic but not on board with the doctrine or were you like, I'm done with that and like... Okay, so... You can talk at length about that or just... Three <laughs> Vatican II, would you like me to talk in English or Latin? Latin, please. <laughs> <laughs> Really, I mean, that was my world growing up, and I was totally committed to it. It wasn't a matter of just being culturally right. Catholic. I was culturally and religiously Catholic, very on board with it. In fact, um, I felt very strongly that I had a vocation. I secretly felt that I had a vocation to be a priest, but since that wasn't allowed, that yeah. I accepted that I 
would had a vocation to be a nun. And then I won a scholarship to university. And um, this, the Saint, I was at an all-girls Catholic high school, St. Joseph Academy, and the nuns there very wisely said, this, this scholarship is a gift that God has given you as your intelligence is, and you should honor that and go to university. So I went to Marquette University, which is a Jesuit mm -hmm. university, that was in 1965. So, 1965, we had, by that time, we had the Civil Rights Movement, and I'm from the Deep South, so that was an incredibly big part of my world from about age 10 on. We had the Vatican II, which you know, the, the joke used to be, oh, well, we can't miss Mass this Sunday because we have to hear the letter from the bishop to find out how we're supposed to be worshiping now. Which way is the altar going to be facing? What vestments are the priests going to be wearing? What instruments are going to be allowed in church? Everything was changing, changing, changing. Very, very exciting time. And we had the growing anti-Vietnam War protests. So, and the growing hippie movement. Right. You know, it was, it was a time of such uniform social, cultural, religious upheaval that it's almost hard to imagine now. You know, there wasn't one area of life where things weren't being questioned and overturned, you know, with a, whether it was the church or the government or the the signs that said white only, colored only, right. you know, the the way you went to school, the where you where you ate, who you ate with, everything. Everything was suddenly turned over. And the general consensus was everything that had gone before was wrong. We yeah. have to change everything. Where were you on that continuum of like like let's keep it the same to like Let's blow it up. Uh, I was on the let's blow. Well, I was almost on the let's blow it up. Um, I so I dropped out of university after my second year. Okay. And um, by you know and became something of a hippie. Moved out to Colorado. Um, got married, a very brief marriage that ended in divorce because, <laughs> this is so funny, this is how much we were in the whole hippie anti-war movement. My then husband wanted to join the Weathermen, which mm -hmm. was the literally blow it up faction. And I was coming out of the civil rights movement, was very committed to nonviolent resistance. <laughs> And so we parted one <laughs> summer for him to go to Wisconsin to, to, and to Yale, where the weathermen were having a big meeting, and me to go to San Francisco with the flower children. And we never got back together again. We ended up getting divorced. So it was very Although much... Wisconsin was a hotbed 
of stuff. It definitely was. And of course, I had come out of Wisconsin yeah. because that's where Marquette University oh, is yeah. in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So yes, I had I was the one who originally had connections with the Weatherman movement, but I very much objected to to their philosophy at the time. Um, Although I have been known to say I would happily blow up the Catholic Church. <laughs> oh, when, uh, yeah. Now we're getting to it. Yes. When, fairly recently, when someone asked me um, to contribute to uh, um, an online forum about changes needed in the Catholic Church, I said I would be happy to contribute, but I don't think my contribution would be very helpful because my contribution is just a line from the Grateful Dead. If I had my way, I would tear this building down. <laughs> that's awesome. I mean, that's actually the, a thing that I've run into with like some of these groups that we've been talking to and all the conversations I've been having with Catholics like over the past, like, I guess, several months. They're like, well, what are the next steps? I'm like, there's no next steps. <laughs> like. We have to talk about this first. Like, that's kind of part of why I wanted to just sit down. Like, you, okay, so you're the lady who teaches my son Sunday school. I did not know that you were all in the weathermen almost. <laughs> and that you want to burn shit down. Like, we don't know these things about each other. And I think that that, that, that itself it talks about, like, a lacking in our faith. Like, I didn't really start, and other people have said this too, that they have not really started really talking to the people next to them in the pews until recently when they felt like this we're in a crisis. And you, I made a lot of assumptions about people, like, oh, they're all bought in. They're totally on board with all this because we all go and we all stand and sit at the same time. But there's a lot of turbulence. Uh, people are not okay with, with what's going on. And um, I think I don't... I would prefer a smaller, weirder church. Because <laughs> if the Psalms or, and the Gospels are your, uh, you know, that's your point of reference, like those are weird things. Like they're not uh, they are. patriarchal things. And you have to work to make them personal, um, which is something that I love to do. I've actually rewritten all 150 psalms in a personal version and I often um, I one of the things that the Catholic Church has given me that I love is the daily readings mm. so my personal devotional life is built around the daily readings um, which one of the wonderful things about the internet it's really easy yeah. to have that now you know so I can pull it up every morning I can read it I often end up, like this morning, rewriting, especially the Old Testament readings, because so often prophets like Isaiah say what I feel needs to be said to the church hierarchy, you know, because they were speaking to a hierarchy that had gone wrong. And that's what we have right now. We have a hierarchy that has gone wrong. There's lots of precedents for that in the history of God and our relationship to God. And I, you know, I don't know how an institution gets out of it. Right. And honestly, I find that I have relatively little interest in how the institution gets out of it. There are people 
whom I admire tremendously. There's a, a theologian in England, Tina Beattie. She's probably the leading women English language Catholic theologian. She's totally committed. There's um, a, a religious teacher at university, I don't think she would call herself theologian, Jennifer Reek, another Catholic woman who wrote this powerful book called Poetics of Church. They are very committed to hanging in there mm -hmm. and figuring out a way to bring the institution back to a more godly focus. Uh, me, not so much. Uh, I'm more interested in keeping arm's length, mm. you know, supporting what I feel good about supporting, which are largely interfaith activities um, and initiatives like IMPACT here mm -hmm. in Charlottesville, um, a number of other national and international, like the International Rescue Committee. But for myself, for my own faith, I'm happy going to that small mass with my mom every Sunday. For, for almost 30 years, I had a weekly Bible study here at my house, and that's the place where we were able to share and explore more our variety of feelings. Although none of the others were Catholic, mm -hmm. uh, they were Lutheran and Episcopalian. <laughs> So you've been involved in like transmitting the faith from one generation to the next. Um, I don't know about your children or grandchildren if they're Catholic. Or none, if none, none of them. And none of them. So you did, but you did faith formation for like the new generation of kids. Um, if you if you had little kids now, like, and you, I'm talking about myself. Um, <laughs> and you're in a situation where you came from a very strong Catholic culture with all of its flaws too. Um, and you're not, you're like, well, here I am, I'm at the, I'm in the position of like transmitting a faith or non-faith to my children. Like, what would you do if you were in that person's shoes? And you can talk about like how, whether it was important for you to transmit the faith to your children when they were growing up or not, like. So, um, I have three biological children and four stepchildren. And for two of my stepchildren, I am their only parent a lot. Um, but only my three biological children were, were part of my life from their birth on. The others came into my life as teenagers or even as older people. So. With my own children, when I was raising them, were in the years where I didn't really believe myself. Okay. Where I was ignoring God. So, although two of my children did come to faith on their own, and I, I was not, my faith was not irrelevant to them, but I wouldn't say that my faith had a big role in forming their own faith. They okay. more find, found their own way to God. Um, Do they practice any religion now, or was? Well, my my son does. My daughter no longer does. 
and in both cases that's heavenly influenced by their spouses. Oh, okay. Which is another whole interesting oh, yeah, that's aspect, a huge right? Thing. Yeah. Um, so my son married a woman whose family is very strong in the Methodist Church. Okay. Um, they're very active. They're very committed. And so, with his wife, he uh, worships in a Methodist Church. And I have to say, I don't think I have ever in my life asked any of my children what their beliefs are. Mm. One of my stepdaughters um, considers herself a Christian. I mean, that sounds like I think she isn't, and that she is a Christian, but she does not attend church. She's not comfortable with any formalized church at all. Um, And the rest I don't know about, to tell you the truth. Um, it's not something that we talk about, which is a little odd, probably, but there it is. Because I think it, you're someone who was called to ministry, and I felt like at some point I was, and a number of women probably have been over these centuries. Yes. And you're kind of, okay, I can't become a priest, but often the female's role is within the household to transmit the faith to the next generation. And it's like this unacknowledged, almost like, lip service role that that the mothers get that they are the ones because at least my my husband's not catholic and he's like you're the spiritual director of the family and like that was always my role and and not to have that now is kind of like well what am i what am i gonna do (laughs) like (laughs) i'll tell you what i regret the most with my children is not sharing with them the beauty of the bible Mm. I mean, books has always been a huge part of our life, and I read to my children from the time they were infants on, and I take such intense enjoyment from the Bible that I don't regret at all not sharing with them the any doctrines right. of my faith or any particular version of what God is or isn't. I'm perfectly okay with them coming to that on their own but I do wish that in just enjoying the poetry and the beauty and the mystery and the puzzlement of the Bible had been part of their lives when they were growing up and honestly one of the reasons I withdrew from teaching Sunday school is because I'm going to be sound very judgmental here and I am but I literally cannot imagine being a young mother and exposing my young children to the Catholic Church that's the crux of it I I, I just I mean when when I wrote a letter to, I wrote a letter to Father Gregory and the parish council explaining the reasons why I was withdrawing both my ministry and my financial support and I said I feel like I cannot react less strongly for other people's children than I would for my own children right and that's I would never let my own children go into a church I am not talking about the sins of individual priests there are priests and ministers and doctors and lawyers 
of both sexes and of indeterminate sex all over the world who abuse people, who sin. It is the way the hierarchy has structured itself to enable and protect the abusers and cast the abused out, yep. discredit them, you know, lobby against the end to statutes of limitations. That to me is like, is I didn't mean to interrupt you, I'm sorry, but to me the, the cynical manipulation of civil law and canon law and legislatures we're not talking about and that's not individual sin that's yeah. like a cynical like move and a strategy that's been employed and i think that that is what's different than i i know last couple weeks ago oh southern baptists do it too it's like nah. like yes they do southern baptists do so do mormons so do jews so everyone does this but right. we're not talking about the individual failing we're talking about a structure that enables it and, and plus, I mean, rewards it. Almost. Think of yourself as a parent. You know, when, when my kids would say, you know, but everybody's doing exactly. that. I would say, I don't care. I care about you, and right. my judgment is it's not good for you. So you're not going to do it. Doesn't matter what everyone else is doing, and certainly. If the church is going to mean anything at all in terms of helping us in our relationship to God, we should hold them to a higher standard, not a lower standard. Yeah. shouldn't be enough that, well, yeah, but it happens everywhere, so of course it's going to happen here. And that, to me, is one of the biggest disappointments in the overall disappointment of the Pope's abuse summit in I February. Even, I couldn't even look at it. When, when Pope Francis said, that it was individual priests who were tools of Satan. Yes, that is correct, but that is literally the tip of the iceberg because the hierarchy that supports and enables and protects them is the iceberg itself. And unless, until they're willing to melt that iceberg, I think that that's the thing, I think that that is the problem, that we're not, they're not there. I mean, how would, what did Father Gregory respond, did he respond to you? No. Nothing? Nothing. So you have volunteered your time as a teacher, given money to support the church, and you've, you also volunteered in Impact and like other yes, things. Yes, and worked in the social justice And there's ministry. no response at all? No, no one responded to my letter. That is telling. It is. It is. Uh, it was surprising to me. It really was. I And frankly, I can't imagine that having happened in any other denominational church that I've worshipped in. And not, I mean, I am not saying those ministers were better, although Dave Johnson is... <laughs> A is man he, your, of, he, your, he was the Episcopal. That the family? Yeah, okay. that's the family. So I'm a little prejudiced sure. about him. And <laughs> I know, you know, he has feet of clay, you know, as I once told his wife that he is her mission field. <laughs> but, you know, he's, he's a man with lots and lots of failings. And there were lots of things that people thought he should be doing as a minister that he didn't do regularly enough. But there is no way he or any other minister 
that I've worshipped with, whether I like them or not, would have received a letter like that and not immediately reached out to ask, you know, do you, are you willing to talk to me? You know, do you, is there something I can do to make this better? Or just, you know, it, it was amazing to me. Um, now, I mean, my letter was very clear that, you know, I set out my reasons, I quoted scripture. Sure. Um, and, and I said, you know, one of the things I said was, I just feel like I can't do less for other people's children than I would do for my own. And, and, you've, and this is like almost your way of like protecting. It yeah. is. Yeah. I feel that this is, as a lay person, I'm not a theologian. You know, I have tremendous respect for women like Tina Beattie and Jennifer Reek. That is their profession. Right. I don't have a profession within the Catholic Church. I feel like I can, I can speak most strongly by withdrawing. Right. Withdrawing myself, withdrawing my financial support. And going and on record. And doing it publicly. Yeah, going on record and being like, I'm not just going to slink away, which is what I did. I'm going to tell you why. Right. Yeah. And yeah. there, there is a group, an international group called Catholic Women Speak, mm -hmm. which I am part of. And I also allowed them to publish my letter on their website. So I did it very publicly. Right. Um, because... That's what I felt called to do, to right. use kind of typically religious terms. Yeah. You know, I didn't do it lightly at all. No. Um, I did it after prayer and thought and several drafts, writing it out and reading it to my husband. And, but I did it. That's what I did. So do you think that, I'm, I'm just forming the thought as I'm talking to you, but do you think like part of being like awake in your faith is sometimes being willing to be homeless? <laughs> Like, spiritually. <laughs> How else do you follow Jesus? Yeah. Where did Jesus have a home? You know, I, I mean, now this gets into where my strong faith lies. I feel more connected to following Jesus' life and words than I do to following his death and resurrection. Um, I don't quite understand why we've put so much emphasis on his death on the cross and pay so relatively little emphasis to how he lived his life right. during the years that we have recorded. But what we know, and I'm not talking about the fact that he was an itinerant Sure. basically and homeless in that sense he lived within the Roman Empire and was not a Roman citizen he lived within the Jewish faith and rejected Jerusalem he started out his ministry in Matthew's gospel by saying metanoia mm -hmm. turn around and he was in Galilee <clears throat> so everybody would be looking to Jerusalem because that's where the temple was that's the only place you went to worship, the synagogues were Sunday schools. <laughs> the temple was where you went to worship God. And he started out by saying, no, turn around. The kingdom of heaven is right here among you, wherever you are. 
And that was a huge metanoia for me. I was like, the kingdom of God is not vested in any church, whether in the building or in the overall structure and hierarchy, you know, and organization of the church. The kingdom of heaven is wherever I am living my life, however I am living it. Well, we've talked for 48 minutes. <laughs> and I just wanted to give you time check. Um, but I did want to come back to that original question that I had in the beginning, which is like, so if you have a prayer that you always come back to, it doesn't have to be my favorite prayer, because I think some people, people get like self-conscious about that, but is there a prayer that you always like just come back to? So there are two, and they're both Psalms. There's Psalm 1, and which, which talks about not sitting with scoffers, not walking with idolaters, um, but living your life as a tree planted by a stream, uh, a tree that bears fruit in season, and not like the chaff that's blown by the wind. Um, because the chaff will never be able to stand before God, but a beautiful tree can. And so I always think of that and think of the words from the poem, you know, um, I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree, a tree that lifts her arms each day to God in prayer, or to pray. It, it rhymes, but I can't do the scan and the rhyme. So. I always go back to Psalm 1, or my own version of Psalm 1, and then also to the lines in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. That's, that's all I hope for, right. you know? Create in me a clean heart and renew a... I'm anything but steadfast. I'm all over the board. <laughs> In my life, in, you know, I, there are some people who live such straight lives. There, and my my road through life has been up and down and curves and twists and around and back and forth. It's anything but straight. So the idea of a steadfast heart appeals to me so much. So that's what I come back to time and, I think and time I kind again. of make assumptions. I mean, at least I do about people who go to church. It's like, oh, people who go to church are a certain type of person, like they're like this, they don't doubt, or they have, or at least they're judgmental and they think they have it figured out, but I think the, the churches are actually, I'm seeing that they're filled with people who maybe have this type of thing going on. And I think doubting is a huge gift from God, mm -hmm. because how else, doubting to me is a form of prayer, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I... I talk to God about my doubts whether or not God exists all of the time. <laughs> <laughs> it is one of my most frequent topics of conversation with God. You know, so so I don't I don't think that there's the, the difference between doubting and having faith. I right. think doubting is part of having faith. Right. You know. So like when you die, are you going to have a massive Christian burial? No. Okay. Oh no, um, actually, <laughs> yeah, uh, my family would tell you that I'm a woman of very strong opinions, and, and of course, I, I, I could care less what they do by way of wake or funeral, right. but I do know that I do not want either my body 
are my ashes sequestered into something that's kept separate from the natural environment? Mm. So they can do whatever they want by way of any kind of celebration or service or what. I could care less. What I care about is that I'm cremated and that my ashes are scattered, preferably in a woods somewhere. Okay. Um, so you've got that planned out. Yeah. Yeah, that's because that's that to me is like if people leave the church, and who have come up in the church in a long, like especially culturally, like in a world that you came up in or that I came up in, it's like they always get you at the end. <laughs> you find people you're like, I'm going to like say such and such for this guy's funeral, and you're like, he's not like Catholic anymore. But it's always yes, you I... know, people don't either. They consciously are like, you know, I'm going back, like later in life and you just don't know about it or it's just like not said and all the people left behind were like let's just put them in there <laughs> because we gotta think about your eternal soul so i wonder how many people really do go through with that i i mean i know several people who think just that way yeah you know no matter how much they feel like um that they might be what was once called lapsed Catholics. Right. They're not going to be lapsed Catholics once they're dead. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Uh, they need that funeral mass, you know. Seal it up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what's your swear, or what are you saying now that you would say is a swear word or phrase? Okay, so. You like to share. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know. You have to remember that I am a, I, I may look like a sweet little grandmother, or at least a grandmother, if not either sweet or little, you know, but I am still a hippie child of the 60s, so my swear is fuck off. <laughs> Sorry, but that's what it is. You know, it, it's, um, but I do want to read something to you that I wrote. Okay. Uh, just a, a week ago or so because it so I I call this staying and leaving Catholic woman's version I have left and returned and left again I have shut the door and then opened it I have locked the door and then unlocked it I have wept I have screamed I have cursed I have prayed I have been lauded for my feminine genius. I have been criticized for my machismo feminism. I have been told no, but mostly I have been ignored. I have been silenced. I have been patronized. I stood at their door and knocked to no avail. So I walked away to other doors, wide open, warm, welcoming. I have left, except for my heart, except for my longing, except for my dreams, except for my sisters. For those always, I have stayed. Swears and Prayers podcast is brought to you by me, Jen Mediano, and producer Erica Gregory at Scout Creative Agency in Charlottesville.